Jeremiah chapter 37, and the text will be from the next chapter, chapter 38, so we can just continue to read. First then, chapter 37 from the book of Jeremiah. Just by way of background, maybe uh, might be helpful. This describes the, the last years of the kingdom of Judah. So as you know, there were two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and then the kingdom of Judah. Uh, they were both disobedient to the Lord. The northern kingdom by now has already uh, been destroyed by the Assyrians. And now we are, so to say, at the end of the history of the kingdom of Judah. There is still a king. Jerusalem is still standing, but yeah, things are coming to an end. And then there is a prophet sent by the Lord, the prophet Jeremiah, also involved. So let us read Jeremiah 37. Now King Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, reigned instead of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land gave heed to the words of the Lord, which he spoke by the prophet Jeremiah. And Zedekiah the king sent Jehuchal, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Maseiah, the priest, to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Pray now to the Lord our God for us. Now Jeremiah was coming and going among the people, for they had not yet put him in prison. Then Pharaoh's army came up from Egypt, and when the Chaldeans, who were besieging Jerusalem, heard news of them, they departed from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me. Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come up to help you, will return to Egypt, to their own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city, and take it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourselves, saying, the Chaldeans will surely depart from us, for they will not depart. For though you had defeated the whole army of the Chaldeans who fight against you, and there remained only wounded men among them, they would rise up every man in his tent and burn the city with fire. And it happened when the army of the Chaldeans left the siege of Jerusalem for fear of Pharaoh's army, that Jeremiah went out of Jerusalem to go into the land of Benjamin to claim his property there among the people. And when he was in the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the guard was there, whose name was Erijah, the son of Shalemiah, the son of Hananiah. And he seized Jeremiah the prophet, saying, You are defecting to the Chaldeans. Then Jeremiah said, False, I am not defecting to the Chaldeans. But he did not listen to him. So Erijah seized Jeremiah and brought him to the princess. Therefore, the princes were angry with Jeremiah, and they struck him and put him in prison in the house of Jonathan the scribe, for they had made that the prison. When Jeremiah entered the dungeon and the cells, 
And Jeremiah had remained there many days. Then Zedekiah, the king, sent and took him out. The king asked him secretly in his house and said, Is there any word from the Lord? And Jeremiah said, There is. Then he said, You shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. Moreover, Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, What offense have I committed against you, against your servants, or against this people, that you have put me in prison? Where now are your prophets who prophesy to you, saying, The king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land? Therefore, please hear now, O my lord the king, please let my petition be accepted before you, and do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe, lest I die there. Then Zedekiah the king commanded that they should commit Jeremiah to the court of the prison, and that they should give him daily a piece of bread from the Baker Street, until all the bread in the city was gone. Thus Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. Now, Chapter 38, this is where our text passage begins for this morning. Now, Shephatiah, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Pashur, Jukal, the son of Shelemiah, and Pashur, the son of Melchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah had spoken to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, He who remains in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes over to the Chaldeans shall live. His life shall be as a prize to him, and he shall live. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. Therefore, the princess said to the king, Please, let this man be put to death. For thus he weakens the hands of the men of war who remain in the city, and the hands of all the people, by speaking such words to them. For this man does not seek the welfare of his people, but their harm. Then Zedekiah, the king, said, Look, he is in your hand, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Melchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the prison, And they let Jeremiah down down with ropes. And in the dungeon there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sank in the mire. Now, Abed Melech, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon. When the king was sitting at the gate of Benjamin, Abed Malak went out to the king's house, out of the king's house, and spoke to the king, saying, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon, and he is likely to die from hunger in the place where he is, for there is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Abed Malak, the Ethiopian, saying, Take from here thirty men with you and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he dies. So Abed Malek took the men with him and went into the house of the king 
under the treasury and took from there old clothes and old rags and led them down by ropes into the dungeon to Jeremiah. Then Abed-Malak the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Please put these old clothes and rags under your armpits, under the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. So they pulled Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the, out of the dungeon. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. So this is our text for this morning. Perhaps I should start with a little apology. Um, I've been preaching from the book of Jeremiah myself, so I'm familiar now with the situation. For you, I don't know if you've heard any sermons from Jeremiah recently. So I'm asking quite a bit of you to jump with me into this situation and just understand what was going on. So I'm asking you to maybe put in an extra effort and try to imagine the situation. And from my side, I will try to explain as, as well as I can. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our text passage takes us back to an extraordinary event in the history of God's people. It was the year 588 before Christ, and the kingdom of Judah was on its last legs. The mighty army of Babylon had invaded the country under King Nebuchadnezzar. The whole country was pretty much occupied by the Babylonians. The only city still standing was Jerusalem. It had not been taken yet, but it wouldn't take long for the city to fall. Anybody who understood the situation could see it coming. And moreover, the Lord himself had told his people that this was going to happen. It was a punishment for the sins over many generations. They had not listened to the Lord. The Lord had told them through the prophet Jeremiah, the city is going to fall. You are going to be taken into exile. But there will still be a future. I will bring you back. So that, was, that was the situation. So try to imagine that. Jerusalem was being besieged, Babylonian army around the city. Now, the focus of the text is not so much on the military developments or on the politics of the day. The focus is on the fact that the Lord is still speaking to his people, even in these circumstances, through the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah. And the focus is on how will God's people respond to him now that the situation is so bad as it is. Now, we started reading in chapter 37, and it doesn't, didn't sound hopeful, 37 verse 2, but neither the king nor his servants nor the people of the land gave heed to the words of the Lord, which he spoke by the prophet Jeremiah. People were not listening. They made up their own minds about the situation. So the situation now become, the, the question now becomes, as the situation deteriorates more and more, what is going to happen? Are the king and his advisors and the people finally going to listen to the Lord? Will they repent? Or will they just stubbornly move forward with what they were doing? 
Now, in our text, there are three different responses. There is the king, King Zedekiah. Then there are the king's advisors, his political uh, advisors, his court officials. And then, finally, there is one individual who stands out. His name is Abed Melech. So there are three different responses to the word of the Lord. And we will see that even in these dire circumstances, the Lord still comes to his people with a message, a gospel message. And the message is this, trust the Lord and you will live. Trust the Lord and you will live. Do what the Lord says and you will live. The question is, will people do it? Okay, here's a second apology from my side. Um, I saw in the bulletin that for those of you who are making notes, there are two points to the sermon. Yesterday when I read my sermon again, I thought it wasn't right, so I changed it to three, three points. So if you make uh, notes, there is a new point. The first point is different. We'll first look at the response of the court officials, the politicians in Jerusalem, and then at the response of the king, and then Abed-Melech, the servant. So first, the text informs us about the king's servants, the, the officials. In verse 1, four individuals are named by name. There is Jeff, Shephatiah, Gedaliah, Jukal, and Pasher. It says that they heard the words that Jeremiah had spoken to all the people. Now, these four men would be the king's political advisors. Perhaps today we would say those guys, they are the Department of Foreign Affairs in Ottawa. They, these were the men who were supposed to understand the political, international political landscape of the day. Um, you had two superpowers, on the one hand Babylon, on the other hand, Egypt. Babylon was the strongest of the two. But for some reason, the political class in Jerusalem thought that it would be a smart idea to revolt against Babylon and to count on Egypt to align themselves with Egypt and hope that Egypt would help them against Babylon. Well, this policy had not worked very well, to say the least. Because the king of Babylon had come with his army, invaded the whole country, taken all the towns and cities. The only city still standing, as we said earlier, was Jerusalem. Now the Lord had sent the prophet Jeremiah to tell the king and his people that Jerusalem will fall in the hands of the king of Babylon. Let's read again verse 2 and 3. Thus says the Lord... He who remains in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. He who goes over to the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, shall live. His life shall be as a prize to him, and he shall live. Thus says the Lord, verse 3, This city shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. That was the message of the Lord. So, Reality showed it already. King of Babylon is going to take Jerusalem. The Lord had confirmed it. Yes, it's going to happen. And it would be wise for you to just accept the reality 
and capitulate. If you give up to the Chaldeans, then you, may, you will live. So it seemed quite clear. All around the city you have the most powerful army in the world, and anybody could see that Jerusalem was going to fall sooner or later, and the Lord had confirmed it. But the Lord's, the, the king's advisors, they were stubbornly holding on to their faith that Egypt would come to the rescue. It's amazing how people can be blind and unable or unwilling to see what is coming. But it often happens in history. It happens in people's personal lives. It happens in, in politics. I was thinking of the 1930s when Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany. Some people understood that there was no future for Jewish people in that country anymore. And some Jews left. But most people did not want to see it. Then they talked each other into believing that oh, it should be fine in the end, but it wasn't fine. Another example, for many years people were willing to believe that, you know, communism, that's the answer to all the problems in the world. Communism is going to solve things. And then over time, as it became clear that communism wasn't solving anything at all, it, wasn't just, it was just creating more problems, people still were blind and they didn't want to see that and, and they closed their eyes to the reality. It's called living in denial. And if we look today around to politics, you see the very same things. You have a political class that is blindly following certain ideas and this has to be through and even if everything else says it doesn't work, it has to be true. Now that's bad enough when that happens, but what you sometimes also get, and that happened in Jerusalem, things get really ugly when the ruling elite of a nation all believe that their policy will save the nation, and if you then do not agree with them, you're going to be branded as a traitor, a dangerous person. That's what happened under communism. That's what happened in Nazi Germany. That's what happened here in Jerusalem. Verse 4, Therefore the princess said to the king, Please, let this man, Jeremiah, be put to death, for he weakens the hands of the soldiers who remain in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. This man does not seek the welfare of the people, but their harm. Now, if there was anybody who was seeking the welfare of the people, it was Jeremiah. But because he was speaking the truth and it didn't fit with the faith, with the beliefs of the ruling elite, they thought he was a dangerous man. They were so blindly convinced that their policy was the right one, even though it was obviously stupid, that they started to see Jeremiah as a man who was not just wrong, but even dangerous. You can imagine how that goes. You have these politicians talking together and they hear, oh, Jeremiah is saying this and he's that, and first they are just irritated, and then later on they begin to hate him, and then they start to demonize him, and in the end they become convicted that this man is so dangerous he should die. Now, there may be psychological factors at play. 
as I said, living in denial. It can be psychological. But there is also a spiritual aspect. There's something satanic coming through. It is what the Apostle Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, where he writes about the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. That's an important text. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. We sometimes wonder when we hear the news and you hear people talking about what they believe and what they think is right. How, how can people even say that? How can they even believe that? Well, yeah, here is an explanation. There's something satanic behind it. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Now, let, take a moment to... Um, Imagine to contemplate what is meant for Jeremiah himself. You're the prophet of the Lord. You're speaking the truth. The truth is even clearly being supported by the facts. And yet you are accused of being a traitor. You're demonized and people wanna, want you to die. That must have been hard for him. Then remember that the Lord Jesus experienced the same thing. First, the leaders of the people, Pharisees and so on, were mildly irritated by his actions and his message. But then they started to hate him. And then they started to demonize him. He's doing what he does. He's doing it by the power of Beelzebub, they said. And then in the end, they orchestrated his death on the cross. And the Lord Jesus has warned us that those who follow him might experience the same thing. You know that word very well. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. John 15:18. We live in a society, brothers and sisters, that is becoming increasingly secular. And with that, we see that irritation, people are irritated by Christians, Irritation can turn to hatred, and hatred can easily lead to persecution of Christian believers. That's what can happen when people prefer to believe the lie instead of the truth. And when Satan succeeds in blinding people's eyes, things can become really ugly quickly. We can only pray, Lord, have mercy on us. We can, so we've now seen the political class in Jerusalem, the political leaders, how they responded to the word of God. Now let's look at the king, okay? The response of King Zedekiah. It was different. It would not be fair to say that King Zedekiah was just like his political advisors. The king himself had some respect for Jeremiah. He had some fear of God. But he also was afraid of his political advisors. So when his advisors told him, Jeremiah should be killed, should be arrested, he said, okay, he must be arrested. What can I say? On the other hand, 
Even when Jeremiah was already imprisoned, the king would still send for Jeremiah and inquire from him secretly, is there a word from the Lord? So King Zedekiah was a weak person. We might say he had no backbone. He feared everybody. He feared the Lord, but he also feared his advisors. And therefore, he never really was able to take a stand. So, here we have now his, his uh, politicians, his advisors. They come to the king and they say, King Zedekiah, this Jeremiah, he's, this is the message that he's preaching. He's undermining the morale of the people. He should die. What did the king do when they came to him with that? Yeah. Verse 5, then Zedekiah the king said, look, he is in your hand, for the king can do nothing against you. Isn't that awful? The king totally surrenders his responsibility, and he says, he's in your hands, what can I do? Of course he can do something, he is the king. He can just say the word and say, no, this man doesn't deserve to die, it's not happening. Jeremiah would be free. Instead, the king throws up his hands and says, yeah, what can I say? I'm not involved in this. You do with Jeremiah whatever you want. We see a glimpse here of another situation that you very well know that would occur in Jerusalem many years later. Pontius Pilate washing his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. So King Zedekiah, in a way it is clever what he does, because by saying he's in your hands, and let's say they kill him, and let's say the people rise up and are, are not happy with that in protest, he can always say, yeah, sorry, it wasn't me, it was the politicians who killed him. And I think it's for the same reason that the four politicians, after the king has said, do with him what you want, kill him, whatever, yeah, they, they want him to die, but they want him to die not obviously. And they could have sent a soldier and just kill him, but that's not what they do. They throw him into a cistern so that he would sink slowly into the mud. So they are cautiously killing him, you might say. And it's interesting. They, they led him into the cistern by ropes carefully so as not to hurt him. Uh, in other words, if tomorrow or the day after, if people find in the cistern, hey, there's someone in there, hey, that's Jeremiah, he's dead. And if there then was an uproar in the city, who did this? They could always say, oh, well, we didn't mean to kill him really. Um, we just let him down in the pit and, oh, he must have died from natural causes. It shows that there was some fear some respect for the prophet of the Lord. Now, I'll come back to King Zedekiah shortly. But for now, let's consider, brothers and sisters, the situation of Jeremiah, the Lord's prophet. He's down in the cistern, several meters below the surface. He is sinking slowly into the mud. He might die by suffocation. He might die from hunger or thirst. But he's going to die, it seems. Isn't it terrible 
that God's people do this to God's messenger. It makes you think of the lament of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 23. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. And again, we see a a glimpse of what was to happen to the Lord Jesus himself, the Messiah. He would also be rejected by God's own people. As the Apostle Peter said on the day of Pentecost, and he was pointing to Jews there, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Now, Jeremiah thankfully did not have to die. He was going to be saved, as we will see. The Lord wanted Jeremiah to continue his prophetic ministry in Israel. But the Lord Jesus, he was thrown into the pit. He experienced hellish agony for a reason, in order that he might finish the punishment for our sins. And because that work of Christ still needed to happen, the Lord continued faithfully with his plan of salvation. Jeremiah wasn't finished yet. Now, before we go to the next, the last point, there is a lesson, I think, in, in King Zedekiah's attitude, if you think about it, as a lesson. Actions have consequences, you know that. Lack of action has consequences too. King Zedekiah had only listened to Jeremiah and acted accordingly. The city and the temple would have been saved from destruction. That was the word of the Lord. And many lives might have been saved. Now, as I indicated, it would not be correct to say that the king hated Jeremiah like his advisors did. He he respected Jeremiah to a certain extent, but he did not have enough trust to obey the prophet's word and act accordingly. Isn't that a danger to all of us, brothers and sisters? That's apparently a possibility that you have a certain respect for the word of God come to church, you want to, yeah, you want to honor church and you want to honor God. Um, And yet, if you examine yourself, do you really have enough trust in God's word to act accordingly? Do we have enough backbone to obey the Lord, even when other people don't like it? Do we have enough backbone to stand up for the Lord? in society, or sometimes in the church, or within your own circle of friends or even family. May the Lord give us that backbone. May we pray for it, that what he says, what he promises, we just go with that, no matter what. Now, there is a beautiful example of that, too, in our text, and that leads us to the last part. In verse 7 and following, we hear about a remarkable initiative of a remarkable man. So verse 7 says, Now, Abed Malek, the Ethiopian, 
Abed Malek, it's a Hebrew name, it means servant of the king. Malek is king, Abed is servant. Servant of the king. He was an Ethiopian. So, in today's political uh, landscape, um, I think that would be Sudan, northern Sudan. The original Hebrew says he was a Kushite. So he's from what we would call northern Sudan today. He was an African man, or simply, he was a black man. And he was also, it says, a eunuch, one of the eunuchs in the king's house. Now, a eunuch, what is that? That probably means that he was castrated. You had men like that a lot in, in, in royal palaces. In those days, a eunuch was a man who was castrated. He was not able to sleep with women. And in the ancient world, they used men like that to serve in the quarters of the, the king's wives. So, in the harem. And uh, forgive me the pun, you could say a man like that can't do any harm in the harem. So, I, I think what we have here was a man from... Uh, Ethiopia, who was well-trained, he could serve the king, he could work in the king's house. Um, In Acts 8, by the way, there is another man like that. You know the story of Philip and the man from Ethiopia. That man, too, was a eunuch, and he was a, a court official of the queen of Ethiopia. So, today we hear a lot about the Black Lives Matter movement. And here in our text, we have a black man, an African man, who plays a remarkable role in the history of God's people. And I'm not saying that God's word condones the Black Lives Matter movement or even says anything about it, not at all. But it is interesting that in God's word, the action of this man has been reported because this man's faith matters. If you think about it, in the whole of Jerusalem, there is not a single person, not a single Jew, who who does anything to save the Lord's prophet. But here is this black man, a foreigner, who is risking his own life in order to save the life of the Lord's prophet. He puts everyone to shame. And that's why he is in there. That's Just see what he does. First of all, we should note his boldness, his courage. He's just a servant. Keep that in mind. He's just a lowly servant in the king's house. But when he hears what people have done to Jeremiah, put him in the cistern, he cannot keep himself. He he goes. He he wants to speak to the king. He finds the king in the Benjamin... uh, What does it say again? The gate of Benjamin, verse 7. And verse 8, Abed Malak went out of the king's house and spoke to the king. Well, that, that takes some courage for a servant to do that. And then consider what he says. Consider his moral outrage. My lord the king, he says, verse 9, these men have done evil. Now, he's talking about whom? He's talking about leading politicians in the city. The names are mentioned in verse 1. He has the guts to say, these men have done evil. 
in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon. And he is likely to die from hunger in the place where he is, for there is no more bread in the city. How did the king respond to this? That's remarkable. The king changes his mind again. Just think about it. Earlier in the day, when the four politicians came to see him and said, Jeremiah must die, he said, okay, if you think he must die, who am I to be against it? Now here comes this lowly servant and he says, what those politicians have told you, and they put Jeremiah in a dungeon, that is evil. He's going to die. And then the king says, yeah, yeah, that's not a good idea. Take 30 men, the king says, and, and get him out of there. Yeah, so the king is really someone without backbone. But anyway, notice now how Abed Malik, the servant, also turns out to be practical, resourceful, and, and compassionate. He gets those 30 men to help him. But before he goes to the cistern, he first goes home to pick up some old rags and clothes. And then when he arrives at the cistern, he throws down the ropes with the rags and the clothes, and he tells Jeremiah to put the rags and the clothes under his arms, under his armpits, so that he won't get hurt as he is hauled out of the pit. And when you think of this man, Abed Malik, I don't think I'm saying too much when I suggest that there is something Christ-like in him. He's bold and courageous. He has a deep sense of what is right and wrong, and he is not afraid to act on it. And then he's also thoughtful and compassionate, and he thinks of a practical way to help the person in need, being Jeremiah. What a contrast between the servant and his master. The king, supposedly the most powerful man in the city, lives in fear. Someone says this to him, he says, yeah, that's fine. Someone says the other thing, he says, yeah, that's fine. The servant, even if he has no power at all, is courageous. What is the difference between these two men? The difference is that one of them trusted the promises of the Lord and the other one didn't. The king had some respect, but he didn't really trust God's word. Abed Melech trusted that Jeremiah was the Lord's prophet. He believed it. He thought that the Lord's promises were trustworthy. And then he had the courage to act, even though it was dangerous for him to do so. How do we know that Abed Melech trusted the Lord? And that that was the reason well, it actually says this in chapter 39. And I'd like you to go with me to chapter 39 in your Bible. We will read the last four or five verses. Jeremiah 39, the next chapter, verse 15. 39, 15. Meanwhile, the word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Go and speak to Abed Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity and not for good, and they shall be performed in that day before you. But I will deliver you in that day, says the Lord, and you shall not be given 
into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely deliver you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be as a prize to you, because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord. Wonderful that the Lord sent the prophet Jeremiah with a word to this man from Africa. Now we learn from these words two things, more, but two, two for sure. We learn that Abed-Melech was capable of being afraid. That's what it says in verse 17. He was afraid of the men, the Babylonians, what would happen if the, the city falls? He was afraid that he might be killed by the Babylonians. So Abed-Melech was not superhuman. He was a man just like you and me. He, he had his fears. But his faith in God helped him to overcome his fears. And that is the second thing. Verse 18, your life shall be as a prize to you. In other words, you shall survive. You will not die because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord. So there's the secret. This explains the difference between the king and the king's servant. The king's servant put his trust in the Lord. That's why he was able to act the way he acted. The king did not put his trust in the Lord. So in conclusion, what is the message for today, brothers and sisters? Well, first of all, that the Lord is faithful to his promises. Even when he punished Judah for its unfaithfulness, he still remembered his promises given to Abraham and then to David about the coming of the Messiah. There was a future for Jerusalem, even if the city had to fall now. And for that reason, the Lord continued to speak to his people through men like Jeremiah. And second, we also see that the Lord rewards those who trust him. The leaders in Jerusalem, they did not trust the Lord. They made their own policies. They were going to fall by their own policies. But here you have this simple man, not a simple man, but lowly servant, Abed-Melech. He trusted the Lord and he was going to survive. Now that's an important lesson for all of us. We do not live, live in a besieged city today. But we do live in our time, and you know about things that are going on in the world. Whatever your situation of your, or your position in life, brother and sister, trust the Lord fully and you will live. That is the message of this passage. Trust the Lord fully and you will live, and that is living really, eternally also. Whether you're a leader in church, or just a regular member, whether you have some status in the world outside or not, trust the Lord fully. What he has promised, trust it. Now, as I said, we do not live in a besieged city. It's not like the walls are going to, crash, to come crashing down. But we too expect a day of judgment. The world is going to come crashing down. Powers and authorities are going to collapse when they have to face the judge of the world. In the Gospel of John, we read these words of the Lord Jesus. 
The Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You find it in John 5. Simple question, do you believe this? Do you trust the word of God when he says things like that? Everyone who believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you believe that? Everyone who believes in the Son has eternal life. It's absolutely certain. Because the Son of God went down into the pit, he experienced the depths of hell, but he overcame death and he was raised to life with a beautiful new body, never to die again, and now he has received all authority in heaven and on earth. He's gathering his church from all nations. We can see it happen. Do you believe it? The Lord's promise is that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ Son of God will share in his eternal life and will share in the inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. Do not be afraid to trust the word of God for all God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ and in him they are amen. It says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. All God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ, and in him they are. Amen.